Welcome back to Brandon Wilborn's Fantasy Fiction Podcast, where fans of classic fantasy adventures can hear the serialized audiobooks of a fellow nerd and indie author completely for free. I'm your author, narrator, and host, Brandon Wilborn. Thanks for listening to me this week. The story portion of this episode starts right after the recap. Last week in the Treasure of Caprick, Curian reached Whalesand and hired the odd but charming Captain Bacchus to brave the passage past Cyrene Island. Muna used her magic to tell Lord of Asius about the blast of light in the Forest of Dury, and Fallon got a taste of what his connection with Muna can cost him. This week I'll be reading Chapter 14, followed by a short personal note. Now I present for your enjoyment, The Treasure of Capric. Chapter 14 The Right Type of Madman The hammocks on board the Osprey were like sleeping on a cloud compared to blankets rolled out on the ground. Slowly, the ship rocked Curry into sleep while the soft lapping of water against the hull wove the spell of a lullaby. He woke the next morning refreshed and alert and was surprised to find himself thinking about their voyage with anticipation. Mr. Darling fetched them before dawn for breakfast. As they left the room beneath the stern castle, Curian saw that Captain Bacchus was only just climbing the gangplank, leaning on a smaller man who wore a hood and cloak against the cold. The captain appeared to be drunk. Even though Bacchus could barely stand and presented nothing like the genteel captain they had seen the night before, he insisted on joining them for the meal. Two of the goat men from the night before were already eating when they walked into a small dining room with unusually curved walls unlike any room the monks had ever seen. To Curian, it felt more like a cave somebody had covered in wood planks than a fully man-made room. Everywhere they looked were small nooks, crannies, and nets that stowed peculiarly shaped items for which he could not imagine a purpose. The noise of men working filtered in from outside as the crew banged about the ship. They shouted to one another in a nearly foreign language that would have been easy to ignore for its strangeness if not for the muddle of familiar words that he caught between the strange ones. Hope you had a pleasant evening. Captain Bacchus said, sitting down. Let me introduce Bill Samuels and Sam Jetters. He indicated the two men already eating. We call them Flotsam and Jetsam. Brothers of the sea, if not by blood. How do you do? said the two men together. Curian assumed that they got the peculiar nickname because they seemed to do everything in unison. Each took a bite or reached for his mug whenever the other did. There was no other resemblance. Bill had the same dark beard that all the crew seemed to have, except that he was heavier, with bright red cheeks and a bulbous nose. Sam had a very straight nose and sallow, sunken cheeks. Cotton's only joking, said Bill. He teases him with the nickname, said Sam, because he found Bill here floating in the sea. And then, Bill added, he tossed old Sam in to fetch me. The two sailors chuckled together, but the joke evaded the monks. Tobin smiled and nodded politely with an expression of confusion he rarely showed. A thin sailor with a dirty leather apron brought out two chargers filled with fried fish and green beans. Finally, the beans, Bill said. Then the two of them engaged in an almost choreographed passing of dishes between them to refill their plates. Bill loves his beans, said Sam as his friend bunched away. Food of dreams, Bill said, his teeth squeaking against the skin of the beans. Learn to eat beans from my father. Green beans, long beans, broad beans, red beans, painted ponies, pickled beans, any type you please. Beans can almost make a man live forever, 
my old dad used to tell me. He studied a particularly long specimen between his fingers as he spoke. My father, who taught me to rhyme, by the by, even wrote poetry about beans. I'll tell you my favorite. At this he stood, and Sam soon followed. Then they began to recite together. Beans, beans, they make you fart, and farting, you know, is good for your heart, cause a grown man giggles like a lass when bubbly air escapes. Bill, Captain Dilly interrupted. I don't think our guests are used to that sort of rhyme. Sam and Bill sat down, laughing together. That was always my favorite one, too, Sam whispered across the table. Kurian almost laughed himself. It sounded like some of the jokes he and his friends would have made back at the compound. He found that he liked the men aboard the ship. Though they were crass and probably illiterate, they were merry. It was a relief from the gloom that seemed to follow his party across the plain. The meal also endeared them to him. After his first experience of fish the night before, the tender flaky meat on the osprey was a culinary masterpiece. It redeemed the whole idea of fish as food. A bell rang outside and Captain Dilly rose to leave, although he had barely taken a bite. Time to cast off, said Sam. Hope we don't tear the mast off, rhymed Bill. Then they both shuffled out to their duties. Captain Fallon arrived in Whale Sand well before dawn, but a nagging feeling urged him not to follow the plans he had formed with the witch. She had told him to surround the tavern with men and then meet her inside. He stopped at the local garrison to gather the force of men he would need, since he had brought only a dozen of his best with him from Dury. Now he had thirty with him, but the whole plan didn't feel right. It was different from the instinct he had when a mission was about to fail, so he began to wonder if the feeling was Muna trying to force her will on him again. His question was answered when they met her on the main street outside the tavern. Our quarry has already moved on, Captain, she said. I've been trying to encourage you to head to the docks. It's too bad you can't just control me like a marionette. Try me, she snapped. We must get to the docks. They've hired a mad captain to attempt the straits. Without warning, she leapt onto the saddle behind him and spurred the horse forward. His soldiers now knew he was not the final authority here. He resigned himself to accepting it until he found his chance to free himself from her control. Perhaps if he were successful, Evasius would promote him beyond her reach. They reached the docks of Whale Sand in just a few minutes. Men moved everywhere in the yard, and it was impossible to know which ship to go to in the dark. They found the harbormaster's office and asked where Captain Bacchus's ship was. He pointed out the window toward the bay, where they saw a ship just barely illuminated from a few lamps already underway. Fallon cursed. Muna ordered one of his archers to follow her, and they hurried toward the end of the dock. After he had knocked an arrow, she cupped her hands over the arrowhead and whispered into them. When she removed her hands, a perfect sphere of roiling fire hung from the end of the arrow. The soldier looked nervously at Captain Fallon and raised his bow. Wait, he said. The man lowered his arrow, and Muna turned on Fallon with a snarl. We must stop them, she shouted. No, we must get the treasure. The witch folded her arms. Of course, that is our lord's first wish. If you destroy that ship, they may not survive, and they will certainly know we are on to them. And we pick up whoever does survive and make them take us to the treasure. Can you guarantee that the right ones will live? Fallon asked, 
enjoying the thought that the witch could be carried away by her emotions like any fool. He knew she had no experience away from the castle. In this circumstance, engaged in a mission where things could change instantly, he had an edge. What would you do instead? If we follow them, they will see us as soon as the sun rises. We stalk them, he said. Can't you do anything to hide a ship, witch? She glared at him, leaving no doubt that she would destroy him if he did not perform. It was still satisfying to get under her skin. I can cloak a ship in fog and darkness, she finally agreed. It will look strange to others within view, but it will protect us from prying eyes. And if we must get close to the island, the sirens should ignore us. We only need a ship to hide, Nicholas. Fortunately for us, the captain said, our lord has a few ships for his future navy here. The prospective admiral and I are old friends. Then lead on, Nicholas. They had to wake the admiral and impress on him the urgency of their mission before he would risk his position and his ship on the chase. After that, his men took their time preparing to sail. Fortunately, the delay masked their pursuit amidst the normal traffic of the harbor. Fallon was certain that the ship ahead would not notice them until they had separated from the cluster of fishing and trading ships that waited to be towed out of the harbor, and with Muna's tricks, they might not know it was a ship that followed them. He smiled, fantasizing about the moment when he would reveal himself and they would realize that their running and fighting had been fruitless. Fallon would catch them and give Avasius his prize, or he would die. On the deck, a cool breeze blew over the osprey from the direction of the bay, carrying the strong smell of salt to which Curian was still not accustomed. It mixed with the smoke of the strange oil lamps around the ship to create a unique but pleasant odor. He watched with fascination as a smaller boat with a dozen rowing men towed them into the bay. When they were almost beyond the sandbar, the crew began to scurry around the deck. They shouted to each other and hauled on a web of ropes that Curian had difficulty following to any specific connections. Soon the sail floated up the mast under an invisible power, with the mystery that a ship can only present to the uninitiated. As the wind caught the sail, Curian felt its strength catch in the ship and carry it forward like the gentle leading of a shepherd. At the same moment, he noticed the first glow of light in the east. Behind the visible chaos of the crew's movements, he felt the finely coordinated effort of men who had worked together for years. In many ways, it reminded him of the training the brothers had engaged in at the compound. When he first arrived, it had been difficult to know what was happening at any given moment, but with time he had learned how the small groups cooperated with the whole to achieve a common purpose. He realized that, apart from sharing an altogether different purpose, this company of men was not unlike the one in which he'd grown up. It soothed his spirit to know that such a thing still existed. He smiled, seeing the camaraderie of men working together in strenuous labor, and he tried to stay out of the way. As the wind drove them forward, he was surprised at how quickly they progressed. In a few minutes they were past the sandbar, and the deck began to roll more severely in the open water. He and his friends were unprepared for the experience. The sailors stopped their work to laugh at the four of them as they stumbled around the deck. Soon Dilly invited them onto the stern castle, where he and Jack Darling stood by the wheel. Ascending the stairs was even more challenging than moving about the deck. Once they were on top, and supported against the railing, Curian began to feel an even greater rising in his spirit. The salt wind in his face and the occasional spray showering back from the bow 
built an excitement within him that whispered of daring and adventure. Welcome to the sea, gentlemen, Captain Bacchus said, giving Curian a knowing look. He seemed revived from his earlier state, and the glint of exhilaration was in his eye again. How long until we reach Rama? Curian asked. Assuming we make the passage, we ought to arrive this evening. Our most dangerous time will come at midday. And how do you propose we make our way past these dangerous sirens? The dean mocked. It was the most incredulous, sarcastic, and disrespectful tone Curian had ever heard him use. In reply, Dilly presented a ball of beeswax. Wax? said Noman. Wax is your brilliant plan? Not entirely, Dilly said, offended. First we stuff our ears with the wax to cover up the siren's song, and then we have men go about the ship blowing whistles, banging pots and pans, and of course we ring the bell till the clapper falls out. In other words, we make the best damn racket we can. If that doesn't drown out those beauties, then it can't be done. Noman shrugged his shoulders. I'll be in the bunk room praying when it comes time. That would be our only hope in my mind, if the creatures even exist. But if we succeed, Dilly's eyes shone, and he seemed not to hear Noman's response. If we succeed, then I'll be the richest captain in these waters. He turned to his first mate. Just imagine the premium we could charge to transport goods to the Northlands in a day, while the other boats still take over a week, not to mention the danger inherent in it. From Curian's perspective, the prospect made no visible impact on Mr. Darling. He held his distant stare over the bow as firmly as he held the wheel. It was late in the morning when they first saw the island in the distance off the port bow. The cliffs towering up on the right had been visible almost an hour earlier. By that time, Curian had found that the rhythm of the waves combined with a lingering exhaustion put him into a sort of waking trance. Other than the brief amusement that they all shared when Reese had turned a little green after breakfast, he had simply stared ahead with the first mate. When Mr. Darling pointed out the island, Curian could not remember a thought that had entered his head during the preceding hours. The part of the island they could see was only a shallow slope rising from the bay. A light-colored beach stood out on the point around which they would have to sail. Further in there were wooded hills that rose quickly into low-lying clouds. It looked like an inviting place, despite the stories that warned them away. We'd best plug our ears early, Captain Bacchus said. Hearing follows quickly after sight in Pollingham. He let out a piercing whistle, and all the sailors gave him their attention. Mr. Darling has told you our course, and bless you stubborn buggers for sticking with me. If we succeed, they will sing songs about us and lavish us with anything we want. The men cheered. But from here on, any man overboard is lost. Each man is responsible for his own body and his own task. If you don't resist those crooning hags, we won't stop you. That goes for me, too. So plug your ears tight and steel yourselves, boys. The speech dampened the crew's spirits, and they each shoved the wax deep into their ears before solemnly returning to their work. The wax was another novelty to Curian, and though he did notice a muffling of the ship's sounds, he was surprised that he could still hear with clarity what those close to him said. Do you think it will work? he asked feeling like he needed to raise his voice. I have no idea, Captain Bacchus shouted with a grin. 
His grin quickly changed to a look of curiosity. Dilly tapped Mr. Darling on the arm and pointed behind Kurian, asking a whispered question. Kurian turned around to see a dark fog in the distance. It hovered in a large mass above the water and spread out from the mass in a broad, low mist. It reminded Kurian of the way buildings or trees would loom out of the fog on the plains when mist rose from the ground. Sometimes it was impossible to tell whether there was something there or if the fog was simply getting thicker until you were almost close enough to touch the thing. Looks like a storm brewing back in whale sand, or some such trouble, Dilly said, still studying the gray mass. He pulled a spyglass from his pocket and looked at the object for a long time before he said, but not like any I've ever seen. He closed his glass and replaced it in his pocket. Well, good thing we're heading the other direction, my monkish friends. Kurian suddenly felt like talking to Captain Bacchus. He wanted to find out more about him, and more importantly, to tell him what he suspected might be behind them. In the back of his mind, he felt a little guilty for not divulging the reason they had to get to Rama so quickly before they hired Dilly and his crew. Captain Dilly, he said at length, how did you know that we were Capricks last night? A not-so-wild guess, my friend. Dilly winked at him. Carrying the staves was a poor disguise. But how did you know we hadn't just stolen them? You obviously knew about the sack of our compound. You had a good smell about you. The comment confused Kurian. The captain saw his expression and sat on the railing next to him before looking intently into his eyes. I could tell you were a good lot. Now, I may not go in for your ideas about God, but I knew that I could trust you to act out of that goodness. The speech was not helping to dissipate Kurian's guilt. One thing I've learned in my business, Dilly continued, is that it's altogether easier on me if I know the other man has scruples. If he does, then I don't have to be as creative in thinking about all the ways he can diddle me, and usually I don't have to be ready to do him the same. In sum, I figured you a safe bet. Now Kurian felt as if he might be getting seasick. He didn't want to be the cause of more pain and death. The dean had counseled them to be tight-lipped about their situation, but Noman's current absence gave them the courage to speak up. What if I told you we were being pursued? He said before the captain changed the subject. Ha! Dilly slapped him hard on the shoulder. Our glorious Lord evades much burned your order to the ground. I'd factored in your fugitivism. How about if I told you that cloud might be them? It doesn't look like a ship. Dilly looked again. We've already met one of his witches. I think that could be one of their illusions. I'm afraid you're probably right, Tobin said. Then let's hope they don't have wax, Captain Bacchus said with an excited gleam in his eye. That's it, Corrine said. You're not angry or worried? I tried both of those once, and I didn't much like them, the captain replied. I prefer to live in the adventure I'm in now and I have no cause to be angry. You boys did me a favor. I've wanted to try this passage for some time now, but couldn't convince the crew without your money. He said the last while hooking a thumb toward Jack. Kurian was astounded at this attitude. He and his friends had run from Avasius' soldiers since they first encountered Captain Fallon in Downriver Town. Now he realized that there was a constant lingering fear over him that sometimes bordered on terror. This strange, gangly sailor looked at the threat with ambivalence, 
and it was baffling. Do you want to do anything about our pursuers? Tobin said with a similar confusion. Captain Dilly shook his head. There's no way they'll catch us before we reach Rama. But as soon as we land, I advise you to get your horses and ride like the devil if they're still behind us. With that, he turned back to the wheel and told Jack to prepare the crew for their noisemaking. What kind of madman have we hired? Curian whispered to Tobin. Tobin looked at Captain Bacchus and said, Exactly the kind we needed, I think. They could not continue their conversation because of the sudden, urgent ringing of the bell, followed by men making noise all over the ship with makeshift instruments. Pots banged together, wooden pins clapped, and screaming whistles mingled with men's shouting. The effort enveloped the ship in cacophonous sound. Somewhere in the din, Kurian thought he caught a group singing a simple melody, but he could not focus on it. If the sirens do not lure us to death, he thought, the blare might drive us all mad. Well, the boys have seen magic, but now they're about to encounter their first magical creatures. Join me next Friday and find out who will be able to resist the allure of the siren song. Now for that personal note. I got back from a long vacation last week. We were fortunate enough to visit family in Korea for the first time. Since then, friends and family have wanted to hear about our trip, and some have been asking about seeing pictures, which usually means they mean seeing pictures on social media, which reminded me of a couple of things I've been meaning to mention here. I was never a very active poster on social media, but there was a period where I would spend a lot of time reading friends' posts, engaging in comments, and doing all the likes and thumbs up and everything else. And for a time, I bought into the idea that you absolutely had to have a social media presence as an author, so I stood up an author page. But again, I was never very active on social media, and I just never had a good feeling about engaging in that and, and making that one of my primary roads to, uh, to, to find an audience. For the last couple of years, I've used those platforms less and less because I noticed that much of the online world was like a leech on me. It sucked away my time, my attention, and my, really, my emotional well-being just as efficiently as one of those little bloodsuckers. So I was already not feeling it, just not feeling good after even just looking and watching social media and doing the scroll thing. So after re reducing my use to effectively zero over the last year, I find myself feeling less stressed, more peaceful, uh, better able to kind of connect with God, and against the common knowledge, really better able to connect and find meaningful relationships with people. You know, like IRL in real life. Irritability has gone down. I've been less just generally angsty. Uh, my ability to focus has increased, which means I've really been getting more done with more joy, like this podcast, for instance. It's kind of amazing that even though I'm doing more things and getting more active in my business and in my life, things which would be stressful otherwise, like ministry, it's so much easier when I'm not scrolling for an hour a day or engaging in these comment wars and just conversations that don't really go anywhere good because everybody's trying to get a one-up on each other. I don't think it's the way we were meant to live. That's largely my personal experience. But, you know, the past six months or so, for largely because I'm working with youth ministry, <laughs> I've been researching the effects of social media after we've gotten some studies done 
And it seems that there are lots of studies and also some insider reports from the social media companies that kind of enlighten my experience and let me know, one, I'm not the only one experiencing this, and two, it was kind of designed to get the effects we're seeing. It was designed essentially to be addictive. And so while I, uh, I still have an author page on Facebook, for instance, you won't see me posting there. I've been meaning to post a final farewell, me farewell message for a long time, but I've just been too busy living more of my life in the real world and really enjoying the blessing of that. However, even though I have a page, you won't see me sending you to that page or to social media in general in any links I send by email or through this podcast because I have come to the point where I have kind of a strong conviction that I want to disengage myself, but I also don't want to send people into something that I believe is addictive and believe is actually damaging to our individual souls and to our culture. I know I'm not the first person to say that, but it's a little cringy for me to say it because it just sounds extreme still because so many people are doing it. But I think um, more and more people are having the experience I had and deciding to do the same. So because of that, I won't be sending you there. With all that said, if you want to reach me or if you want to find out what's new with me as an author, the best way is through my website or through email. I do send out an author email two to three times a month, and you can sign up for that on my website, brandonwilborn.com. And when you sign up, you'll get a couple of stories for free. So that's a little bonus. But then you'll hear from me on a semi-regular basis about what's going on in the writing world. And if you do see somebody posting as me on social media, it's likely an imposter. Go ahead and flag them. I'd love to hear if you have any comments or questions. You can send me a message or leave a voicemail, as I've always said, by going to brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you're enjoying it, please give it a five-star rating and a review, if possible, if that's an option in your app. Then share the show with any fantasy fans that are in your personal close circle. If you personally use social media and you choose to share it on those platforms, I can't stop you. But you could also send it by text, email, phone call, or smoke signal if you're old school. That's all for this week. Until next time, Godspeed. The Treasure of Caprick is also available in print and ebook formats from all major booksellers. Find a link to your favorite retailer in the show description or go to brandonwilborn.com. That's brand on, not brand off, and Wilborn is as simple as you can make it. W-I-L-B-O-R-N. This has been The Treasure of Caprick, book one of The King of the Caves, written and narrated by Brandon M. Wilborn. Copyright, Brandon M. Wilborn.